Good morning. We pick up in the middle of chapter 4 of Ephesians at verse 25. Before this, we've been hearing that we are to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. And we shouldn't be like those who are in darkness because we've been called to hope in Christ. So join with me uh, at verse 25, chapter 4 of Ephesians. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity, or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once in darkness. You were once darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Thank you, Tav, and good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. I'm Jamie. If we haven't met yet, I'm one of the pastors here. Let me take us back a couple of millennia to a noisy crowd of ancient Israelites standing on the edge of their promised land. Their journey to this moment has been epic. Imagine being one of those ex-Egyptian slaves, the things you would have seen, the, the trauma of growing up imprisoned in a brutal world of forced labour. But you've seen the unmistakable hand of God, overturning Pharaoh's evil plans and leading you out as free people through parted seas. And this God has actually addressed you. You are my holy, 
precious people and through you I will show my goodness to the world. Since those amazing events, there have been challenges for sure. Some hard years of travel in the desert. Just imagine how much dust you would get caked up in your nose with that. And there's been hunger and conflict. And now with the promised land in sight, you can see how big the enemies are. So this precious congregation starts to murmur. Maybe life as a slave wasn't so bad. Ah, oh, do you remember how tasty those fish from the Nile were? Let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now, in case you're panicking that I'm preaching on the wrong testament, uh, I do know that today's sermon is on Ephesians. But this story shows us something very human that's very helpful for understanding our passage today, I think. So you can imagine that mob looking at each other and thinking, us? Really? This guy can't even keep his donkeys under control. How are we meant to be the triumphant, holy people of God? And so they start looking back over their shoulders with rose-colored glasses and just digging around in their backpacks to see if they still have their old prison rags. It's kind of ridiculous behavior, but I think it's relatable. Why do we do things like that? The Ephesians have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. Paul has told them that as Jew and Gentile unite together as brothers and sisters, God is displaying his manifold wisdom to the universe. Last week we heard that beautiful picture from Cam of God's people as a unified body that builds itself up in love. As you hear that, you might be thinking of your experience of church and and wondering, really? Us? With all our baggage and issues, is that actually practical? And so just before our passage today, Paul urged this precious congregation, don't look back. Verse 17, he said, You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. And remember, lots of the Ephesians were Gentiles, but that's not how they're defined anymore. Because when a person comes to know Jesus, they change forever. God recreates them to be like him. And the challenge is putting on that new self day in, day out. How can a work-in-progress church like the Ephesians, or like us, become the beautiful, unified body that Jesus saved them to be. Well, don't go digging in your bag for your old prison clothes, says Paul. Jesus has something better in store. And in the verses in your leaflets, he gives us three positive and practical ways to not look back. So heading one, put on your new clothes. Let's read the start of verse 25 again. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully. Now, this is the language of taking off the old and putting on the new. And I've been trying to draw on my vast knowledge of fashion to illustrate this idea. But I just kept thinking of how slow I am to throw out old clothes. You know, nostalgic old band t-shirts or suits that for some reason just keep seeming to get smaller 
Well, if I was honest, I would say that's just not me anymore. Those who follow Jesus should expect to find themselves saying that a lot. Because knowing him changes everything. You're no longer without hope and without God in the world. No longer working to prove yourself, but saved by grace. And bit by bit, you realize that some of your old clothes just don't suit you anymore. And Paul explores three parts of life where we might need a wardrobe change. Our lips, our hearts, and our hands. So first, our lips, verse 25 again. Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. I hope you'll notice as we look at these challenging instructions that each one comes with a warning, a positive alternative, and a reason. God knows that we're not robots designed to mindlessly follow rules. He reasons with us so that we can respond creatively. So warning, put off falsehood. Positive alternative, speak truthfully. And reason, because we're all members of one body. One body bound together because we all belong to the God who never lies. It's just not us to lie to each other. Our words should build relationship and trust. Similarly, in verse 29, instead of unwholesome talk, God's people should deliberately try to build each other up. The reason in verse 30 is striking. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. It actually somehow causes God, the Holy Spirit, pain when we let rotten words come out of our mouths. Not because he's needy and we let him down and he gets sad. He's the powerful spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. He doesn't need us. But he's the spirit of truth. And so that seemingly banal act of hiding a truth or using harsh words, it's out of step with the spirit who is leading us surely to that day of redemption. And that grieves him. What are some of the challenges for us today to put on the new with how we use our words? I think we live in a culture that's both very polite and very harsh at the same time. Uh, polite in that we, you know, we don't want to offend each other. Uh, Adelaide's famous for that. Uh, I found out while I was in Sydney. Uh, and so we shy away from the idea that you know, maybe we're a bit nervous to say that something might be true or false. Uh, But harsh at the same time, right? Because it's pretty normal to cut others down, especially if they're tall poppies, to feel strong. Now, in church circles, maybe we're more likely to acknowledge that truth is a real thing. What can be challenging, though, is letting each other in on what is really happening in our lives. We can be tempted to stretch the truth or maybe just not say something that might make us look bad. And let's be honest, it's easy to adopt the harsh and even crude words of our culture because they're just normal. Jesus, our gentle and honest Lord, didn't save us to talk like that. He saved us into a body that grows specifically by speaking the truth to each other. The truth about the gospel, the truth about our lives, even if it's a bit awkward at times. But we can get involved in Jesus' church building project with how we talk. 
It's easy to tear down. Complaints and criticism can kind of feel like the path of least resistance. But building is labour. And I've got to say, I've been really struck and encouraged, actually, by the great example that our senior pastor, Matt, sets with this. Have you noticed that? How hard he works and using that gift he has with words to encourage others. I want to take notes from him. Second wardrobe change happens in our hearts, that place where we hold our anger. Look at verse 26 with me. In your anger, don't sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anger isn't wrong in itself. Uh, Sometimes it's exactly the right response to injustice or hypocrisy or even death. Uh, God hates those things. But we're not God, so we're at risk of letting even right anger lead to sin. We can get angry about the wrong things, like not getting our way. Uh, And worse yet, for Christians, we can do that in the name of righteous anger. Anger unchecked can lead to horrible outbursts, or it can quietly simmer away into a stew of bitterness and resentment. And the reason that matters so much is that anger gives Satan a chance to pick away at our unity. There's a spiritual battle going on in this most common place of emotions. So Paul gives us a super practical principle. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. That is, take real steps to deal with it before the day's business is through. You know, rather than rushing through my last couple of emails before the end of the day, if I'm angry with someone, my top priority needs to be to drop those things and work out my anger with that person. Because going to bed angry would let that anger just seep in a little bit more and become a bit more a part of me and give the devil a foothold. Have you been putting off dealing with your anger about something? If a bunch of works in progress like us are going to grow in maturity together, we probably will make each other angry sometimes. Dealing with our anger needs to be at the top of our to-do lists. If that anger is against another person, then we're called to work towards forgiveness. After all, God forgave us. But it's worth acknowledging that real forgiveness takes time and work when there's been serious hurt. Not letting the sun go down on your anger doesn't mean just putting on a band-aid, it's all good. It might be more like getting on the forgiveness train. You know, it might start with a prayer that God might help you to want to forgive that person. Or it might involve planning a difficult conversation where you express to someone as kindly as you can a way in which they've hurt you so that you can work towards reconciliation. Anger just doesn't fit right on forgiven sinners. Third part of our life that Paul looks at is our hands. Rather than using them to snatch from others, we need to practice generosity. And the fact that verse 28 is in the Bible uh, says something about God's grace. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but they must work doing something useful with their own hands. 
That assumes that in the Ephesian church, there were people, brothers and sisters in Christ, with every spiritual blessing, who were still carrying on with old habits from a life of crime. As a church family, we should expect that we all come with issues and baggage and hang-ups, and God in his kindness takes us as we are. But he loves us too much to leave us where we are. The God who saves by his generous grace gives his people good works to do. So it's only fitting that the ex-thief should learn to do good with their hands so they can become a giver. As we learn to put on generosity and reach out our hands with something to share, are there areas where we've learned to be withholding? How might the lavish generosity of our God shape the way we rethink those things? Hands, hearts, lips. Can you imagine what it might mean for our church if we kept chipping away at those things together, speaking to each other with growing honesty, using words to build, learning not to foster resentment, working hard to be generous with our hands? In those everyday practical changes... God shows his wisdom to the cosmos. So is it time to say goodbye to some old rags? Are there things going on with your lips, hands or your heart that really just aren't you anymore? As I've sat in this passage this week, I've been somewhat surprised to find that I might not be as good at dealing with my anger as I assume. Uh, I don't tend to lash out. But I started to see that I can let anger brew and I can become quick to feel hard done by. And I think I'm buying into an old narrative that's wrong. And the devil would love to see me harboring those feelings, becoming resentful of others and more and more self-pitying and self-focused. But that's not my story. I'm loved by a generous God who actually had good reasons to be angry at me and he chose not to hold it against me at the cross. How about for you? What's that positive alternative that our patient God holds out to you that you can put on? Well, learning to get dressed in our new clothes can be harder than it sounds because let's be honest, we're being pulled in lots of different directions on any given day. Old habits die hard, and we can sometimes look at them with those rose-tinted glasses. So heading two, grow in your new home. Have a look from verse 32 with me. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, And walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. One of the challenges of writing a sermon on this uh, passage that has lots of practical instructions for Christians is I really didn't want it to become a moral pep talk or a beat up because the passage just doesn't do that, does it? It's not about passing a test to get into heaven, it's about living as God's dearly loved children. 
Yes, there are very practical steps that we learn as we kind of start toddling about and learning to walk in his household. But we're talking about change from a complete place of security. If you follow Jesus, no matter how good or bad a job you do of living in his house, your place there is not up for grabs. But you're learning to bear the family resemblance. Learning from your Saviour's example. Uh, The main mark of our Saviour's example there is self-giving love. And if it wasn't, then none of us would stand a chance of being God's dearly loved children, would we? But Jesus, knowing our capacity for lies, seeing our angry fists shaking at each other, at him, when we were far from him, Jesus came near and gave himself to a thief's death so that we could go free, free to come home to God. So this work in progress, precious to God church, can grow in maturity and unity together by growing in that new home, watching and learning from the master of how to put others first. But again, when the rubber hits the road, that's, that's complicated Because there's another kind of child in this passage, uh, a bit more of a word-for-word translation like the ESV uh, in chapter 5 verse 6 uses the phrase sons of disobedience. Living in this broken world as God's people means being pulled between two households, our new true home with God and our old home among the sons of disobedience. Which is why Paul urges in verse 3, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking which are out of place but rather thanksgiving. We're talking about all sexual intimacy outside of marriage, engaging in it or wanting it, joking around about it. And what stands out about those behaviours is just how much they contrast with the self-giving love of Jesus. They're all about wanting more for me. But they're all also so normal. Ancient Ephesus was known for worshipping the fertility goddess Diana and there were all kinds of sexual exploits tied up with that worship. Today we don't literally treat sexual immorality as an act of idol worship But the message that I'm free to sleep with whoever I choose is more or less sacred, isn't it? The idea that romance conquers all is preached from our screens daily. So for the believer in Jesus, it would be understandable if we look over our shoulder and think, can't I have it both ways? And to that, Paul says, of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Wow. None of us would have a leg to stand on if it wasn't for God's grace. That's all of us in one way or another, isn't it? Well, not anymore, thanks to Jesus. So how should we think about those things now? Sexual immorality is normal, but it's not fitting in God's family. So don't let anyone deceive you into thinking you can have the best of both worlds. 
verse 6. If you buy into those things in an ongoing, unrepentant way, it will destroy you. You know how annoying it is when uh, you buy something that doesn't do what it says on the packet? Uh, In the latest episode of my life as a reluctant gardener, uh, I went and bought some grass cutters the other week just to get some of those sneaky bits that my lawnmower misses. And how effective do you think those grass cutters are at cutting grass? Uh, I'd love to chat to you more about it uh, later, but it's not that pertinent really. Maybe as we've gone through this series on Ephesians and you've heard about what church is meant to be, you've had a similar feeling. You know, it says that we're meant to be a family. Is that what I'm experiencing? And if that makes us sad, and it should, imagine how God feels as he watches his precious people living like his ways don't matter. So let's ask, what voices are shaping me? If you're honest, is your inner monologue about wanting more for yourself? Is there a hint of sexual immorality that needs dealing with? Bring it to God today. And when that's a struggle, notice the antidote in verse 4. Thanksgiving. The opposite of self-indulgence, I guess. And as we think about those voices in our culture competing to define us, it's not about cutting ourselves off from anyone that doesn't follow Jesus. But what does it look like not to be partners with those voices? The answer might not be to disengage. It might actually be to engage even more. As you watch TV or you read the school newsletter, to ask the question, what is this telling me that life is about? And how do I respond to that as a child of God? Hey, perhaps as you're hearing this, you're aware that Jesus isn't the dominant voice in your world at this point. And however you might feel about that, could today be a good day just to reevaluate what is shaping you? Is there any chance that those things might be voices of deception? Because there is a better story to be found in following Jesus a story of compassion and security. So if you haven't, or it's been a while, getting to know that story might be the best thing you ever do. A great place to start would be just reading one of the gospel accounts at the start of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, just to see if that self-giving love really is for real. Prison rags no more. Jesus gives us new clothes and a new home to grow in. And finally, a promise that even an ordinary bunch of believers will indeed show the goodness and wisdom of God to the world. So heading three, let it shine. There's no separation between home life and public life for the child of God. Let's read verse eight. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Now that's true at Coles, at church, at work, at school, even at Bunnings. And again, the call for change comes from a place of security. You are light in the Lord. What a transformation that is. You know, without Jesus' intervention, every human being would be lost in darkness, unable and unwilling 
to respond or find God. And yet in his kindness, God says, let there be light. And then he sends us out to be light in his world. So what does that life look like? Well, verse 10, it involves finding out what pleases the Lord. You know, God doesn't override our brains uh, when he recreates us. Rather, he calls us to think proactively together. What would Jesus think about this decision or that decision? And the effect will be radiant. It'll expose the deeds of darkness for what they really are, verse 11. Now that's true, isn't it? If you've known Jesus for a while, he has a way of shining a spotlight on those awkward dark corners of our lives. And so too as Christians interact in the world, sometimes to good reception, other times not so much. Light exposes, but more than that, verse 13, everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. The goal of living as lights in the world isn't just to, isn't to catch others out. It's that they might become lights too and know life in God's family. It's a beautiful picture of light catching on and spreading like one candle igniting another. If you're a Christian today, can you think of people who did that for you? Where are the opportunities for you at the moment to let your light shine, to live differently so that others can come to know Jesus? Or to ask a slightly pointier question, are there friendships or relationships in your life where that's really hard and you're tempted to blend in or go back to your old ways? I'm sure we all have those tricky relationships. What would it look like to wear your new clothes in those places? Maybe just starting by praying for those people again would be a good place to start. Light is meant to illuminate like one candle to the next. Like that flicker of light when a Christian brother decides to stop joining in complaining about the boss with his colleagues, uh, which is a scary choice because that's probably the best way to bond with the others at work. But when the gossip starts at lunch, he reminds himself, uh, I was made to build up, not tear down. Or the spark of light when a Christian sister decides it's time to stop swearing around her old school friends. If you've been following Jesus for a while, have you ever had someone apologize to you for swearing? I think that's a good thing. Uh, Not that a sinner saved by grace needs an apology, but someone's worked out that you try not to swear because of your faith, that's good. Wouldn't it be even better if they got to know the gentle, loving Lord who influences the way you speak. How can a precious bunch of works in progress like us become the radiant light that Jesus has saved us to be? Well, that process of becoming what we are in Christ, it's being changed and changing. We're changed. The king of the universe has invited ordinary, flawed, sinful people like us to his house. He's paid for our adoption, and anyone who says yes to him is part of his family forever. Changed and changing. Living with the king is that ongoing process of gradually sorting through the baggage that we brought in with us. And yeah, cringing a bit 
as we let him see the different compartments of our rucksacks. Uh, Here's the compartment where I keep my money. Here's the moldy lunchbox where I hold my anger. And just bit by bit, letting Jesus sort it out for us. And only when our lives here on earth are over, will that process of chucking out the old rags and putting on the new robes be finished. Uh, The rest of our lives here is going to be about bringing every bit of our lives, bit by bit, under Jesus' good lordship. After all, that's the direction the whole universe is heading in. So let's not look back. Wherever you're at right now, Jesus has better things in store. So what would you like to reflect on more this week? Do you need to dwell on what God has done for you? That change of becoming a new creation by his grace? Or is there a compartment of your life that you need to let Jesus into? Is today the day you finally need to pray that prayer and acknowledge an area of sin in your life to God? Maybe a grudge you've been holding or a voice you've been listening to instead of God. And by his grace, put, start putting those new clothes on. Or is there a section of your calendar this week where you need to ask for God's help to let it shine? I pray that this week might be a week where we all take another step towards maturity and unity together and where we take hold from a place of security, just a bit more of the riches that Jesus has in store for us. So let me finish by praying these words from Ephesians 3 for us. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.